morning, Shannon. Our scripture reading for today comes from the Old Testament book of Jonah. Jonah's kind of hard to find in your Bible. It's, it's toward the end of the Old Testament. Um, and so, as I have always said, there's no shame in using your uh, index, using uh, the index in the front of your Bible. Um, but we're going to be reading all of chapter four from Jonah. And so I ask you, um, hopefully in your homes, you'll, you have a copy of God's word there and you'll be reading aloud as, um, or you'll be reading along as I read aloud. But Jonah chapter four, of course, these words come to us, we believe, under the inspiration of the very Holy Spirit of God. And so they come to us with uh, authority and we read them with confidence. So Jonah chapter four, beginning in verse one, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Verse five. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade until uh, he should see what would become of the city. But the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah and gave shade to his head to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. And when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, you did not make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. Well, of course, we, we finish up our study of Jonah, and as I mentioned, this was supposed to be the end of our missions conference. And I look forward to this week every year. Uh, it's, it's so encouraging for me to have missionaries from all over the world come and to be a part of us. And it's, it's a time where we're active as a church. It's a time where we're engaged as a church. In fact, you know, last night, we were supposed to meet as a church and pack 50,000 meals that we were going to send to Haiti. And I love that night. We've done this for the past couple of years. And, um, and so Monday, is, as we were realizing through, of course, last weekend, that, that really all of the plans that we had made and worked hard for for this missions conference, as we realized all of the plans were kind of coming unraveled and that we weren't going to be able to do any of this as we'd planned. I mean, I thought maybe a few of our partners could still make it and we could still have some, could create some good content with them. But then Zane Pratt, who Zane literally uh, served in Central Asia for years and years. He, he literally had his first child in Abbottabad, Pakistan, where they killed Osama bin Laden. And when he told me he couldn't come, 
I, I knew that the missions conference probably wasn't going to happen this year. And, and I was initially just incredibly discouraged and, uh, and just, just, just bummed about the whole thing. But, but I went on a walk on Monday afternoon with my family and I just had this, this moment of, of great clarity. I, I realized that the, the whole reason that we do the missions conference, I mean, the whole reason that we even put all this together and have all these guests come and, and, and go to all this effort, the whole reason that we do it is to stir the hearts of our church toward the mission of God. That's the reason that we do this. We want to stir your hearts toward the mission of God. And, and throughout this coronavirus time, I, I think that it has made us so urgent We've realized, I hope anew, how fragile our lives are, how small our lives are, how needy we are for the Lord. You know, as I said last week, one of the verses that's been on my mind this, this entire time, this entire kind of crisis, has been Romans 5.12. You know that verse? It's, 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 it's an amazing verse to think about right now. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And you know, I've been thinking about this verse, you know, because what we think happened, I guess, is this, this virus came into the world through one person, and now literally whatever happened, if it came into that person through contact with an animal, however that happened, now literally because of this one instance in a virus coming into a man, literally, or a woman, the whole world has been affected by this. And now you may not get the coronavirus, I may not get the coronavirus, but we've all been affected by it. But I, I wanna tell you, say this, that there actually is something that we've been affected by even more than the coronavirus. And in the same way, just as sin came to the world through one man, and death through sin, it's, it's spread to all of us because we, we all have been affected by sin. We've all, all been, if you will, infected by sin. We were meant to know and to glorify God. We were meant to have a union with God forever. And now because of our sin, we've been separated from God and we have this great problem. And here's the deal, church family. I hope you realize this. You have the cure. Jesus has given his church, his saints, the cure to sin in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus has said, look, you can actually call people out of their sin and toward a life in Christ and toward a life with God through my gospel, through the power of my cross, through my perfect life and atoning death and life-giving resurrection. We have the cure. And Jesus has entrusted this incredible gospel message to us and told us to go and make disciples. Go and tell them the good news. Go, go and tell them that this thing that has infected us, that has, that has left us lost, that has left us separated from God, there is a cure and his name is Jesus. And so maybe, just maybe, and I so hope this to be true, the very thing, the coronavirus, that's causing us to cancel the missions conference would be the very thing that actually stirs us to mission and stirs us, and stirs us to faithfulness to God more than anything else ever could. And, and I actually think this, this text is an incredible text for us to think about today. Jonah is a story of God's power in many ways. I mean, obviously, the obvious part of the story, 
when Jonah is saved in this miraculous way, whatever happened to Jonah, if he, if he died and was resurrected or if somehow God sustained him in some sort of miraculous way, whatever happened there, it's an amazing story of God's power and care. Then, of course, we have Jonah going off as a preacher. And once again, God displaying himself in this amazing way. Uh, all of Nineveh is saved. All of Nineveh turns away from their sin and toward God. What an amazing story of God's power. But, but chapter four is very unexpected. When you read chapter four, it comes on the heels of, of all the people of Nineveh. Look at the end of chapter three. It says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. That's how chapter three ends. So you expect chapter four to be, and Jonah was elated. All of his fears were calmed. He realized that these people that he was so afraid of had now turned to the Lord, that they had now listened to, they had listened to his preaching, and that God did this amazing work. That's what you would expect, but that's not what you see. What you see is, is anger. What you see is that he is kind of rejecting this. Yeah, this was really an unprecedented event. There have, been, there have been some moments in the history of the church where you, you see a, a big group of people kind of turning to the Lord all at once. In fact, there's a little town uh, just east of Atlanta. It's near Covington called New Bern, Georgia, and they actually are newborn Georgia. They, they changed the name of the town after a great revival happened there in the 19th century when most of the town turned toward the Lord. Again, there have been other moments. I mentioned Patrick last week and the Celts really in one generation turning to the Lord. So there have been other moments kind of like this, but, but for a whole city to be that was so far from the Lord, that really had so little revelation of God to be turned toward the Lord in such, a ha- in such a fast and quick way is an amazing thing. But Jonah is not happy about this. Look at verse one again. It says, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was, he was angry. Now verse two is a fascinating verse. And, and it, it points us to the, the kind of the first point that I wanna talk about with you today. And that is the problem of grace. The problem of grace. Look at verse two. It says, and he prayed to the Lord, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? All the Ninevites have turned. And he says, this is not what I told you would happen. This is why I made haste to flee from Tarshish because I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now, Jonah knew this because this verse is one of the most common verses in the entire Old Testament. It it works its way as a refrain throughout a lot of the writing in the Old Testament. We we first read it in Exodus 32, but it appears again, or Exodus 34, rather, it appears again in Numbers 14, Nehemiah 9, Psalm 86, uh, Psalm 103, Psalm 145, and then, of course, here again, In Jonah 4, it's a powerful expression of the very character of God, that he is slow to anger, that he's abounding in steadfast love, that he's merciful, that he will relent from disaster. And and because Jonah had read his Bible and because Jonah had sang the Psalms of the scripture and because Jonah had heard the words of the prophet, he knew this was true about God and he didn't like it. He, He didn't like grace. 
he was a prophet. He was a good guy. I mean, Jonah, I'm sure he had to pursue holiness and righteousness. But all these Ninevites, these people that had been, that were so small-minded, that had rejected God, these people that had actually persecuted the people of God, these were the Assyrians, and, and, and they were them. They were the worst. They should be judged. They should be punished. And this is the problem with the grace of God. You know, in church, we talk about grace a lot, right? We talk about God's grace. We, we talk about it in our sermons. We sing about God's grace. We mean, amazing grace. It's like the most popular Christian song ever. So many songs about grace, so much talk about grace. And grace is a nice thing to talk about. It's nice to sing about. But, but I want to say to you that it, it's actually hard to believe in. It's nice to talk about it. It's nice to sing about it. It's, it's nice to kind of think about it for other people, but it's really hard. And, and I would say this, it's, it's actually really hard, especially for people like you, especially for people that have done really well, especially people that have typically lived pretty good lives, right? And you've worked hard and you've done your best and you've always tried hard in life. Grace for you is, is really challenging. It's, it's really, it's really difficult, one of the things that Christians believe is that we are justified by grace alone. Now, if that word justified or justification is kind of a new word for you, justification is basically your performance record, what you're going to be known by. It's your resume. What's going to count when you stand before God? And what Christians believe is that we're actually not justified by our performance record but we're justified by the performance record of Christ. We're justified by another. We actually don't contribute to our record of righteousness, if you will, or justification or performance record, but rather, if you're a Christian, that means that through faith, through your faith in Jesus, you are counting on his record of righteousness and not your own. And look, when I talk to people in Atlanta, people in Atlanta are happy to say, look, I'll... I was certainly helped along the way. You know, I, I, I had good parents. I went to good schools. People in Atlanta are certainly willing to say, you know, I got a little lucky here and there. There was times where my life could have gone this way or could have gone that way. But fortunately, it went this way. And I can see that they even might say, God was looking out for me there. People in Atlanta will say, you know, we, we've all made some mistakes along the way. We've all done some things that we're not proud of. And it's, and it's those times when we need a little help. It's those times when we need God's grace. But here's the deal. That, that's actually not how the Bible talks about the grace of God. If that's what grace is, if grace is, Jason, he's a good guy. He usually does pretty good. But, you know, he makes a mistake here and there. I mean, after all, he's not perfect. And in those times, he needs a little boost. He needs a little help. Well, if that's grace, then we're fine with it. You know, we're fine with that. Of course, we all need a little help. But, but for well-educated, successful people in Atlanta, like so many of you, it, it's, it's hard to say. It's hard to say the, what the Bible says about grace. It, it's hard for you to say, as Ephesians 2 says, I was dead in my trespasses and sins. Dead not needing a little help, but ruined by my own sin. 
It's hard to say, as Colossians 1 says, that I was an enemy of God in my sin. I was opposed to God in my sin. I was utterly helpless. I was ruined. Even the the songs that we sing, I mean, Amazing Grace, we love to sing that song, right? We love to sing about it, but have you ever like really understood what you're singing? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You may not know what the word wretch means, but think of the word wretched. That saved a wretched person like me, you know, wretched, a, a despicable person. Here's the thing, most of us don't see ourselves like that. Or, you know, even other lines from the song, I was lost. Not I needed a little help. No, I was lost. Or I was blind. This is not the description of the good guy that needs a little help here and there. And you see, this is the problem of grace. None of us want this kind of grace. None of us want to have to say, no, it's not my performance record that counts. It's, It's... only God's grace. We want to be able to say, we worked hard, we did the right thing, and they didn't. That's what we want. Nobody wants to say, I am wretched. I am blind. I am lost. You know, I've given this illustration many times, but I was recently teaching in Canacook, um, which uh, they have a program called the Canacook Institute. It's an amazing program, 70 or 80 of the, the brightest young minds. They come together and uh, they study God's word for a year. It's a Christian discipleship material. Um, and I've taught there for several years and I love it. And, and I was giving kind of a similar talk. I was preaching through Ephesians and I gave this illustration that I've given many times, but I, I called one of the, the gals in the class up to the front of the class. And I said, you know, let's just say her name was Sarah. And I was careful to find like the best girl, like the girl that you know, like always did her homework and always made her bed every night. I I was careful to find like that girl. I knew that this girl was buttoned up. The kind of girl that when you were in college and you needed somebody's notes before the test, you would ask her, right? So I found that girl and I I pulled her in front of the group and, and, and I said, look, we, we all know Sarah here. I'm sure she's a great gal. I'm sure that she's just amazing. And, and, and what have I said to you guys? We really want to get to know Sarah. And so I'm going to show everyone here a video, a movie about her whole life. But here's the deal. The, the, the movie is going to be exhaustive. It's not just going to show a few parts of her life. It's going to show everything in her life. It's going to go show everything she's ever done, all the good things she's ever done, but it's also going to show all the not so good things she's ever done. It's, it's also going to show all the times of her life when she really wasn't proud and maybe she was a little ashamed of it. We're just going to see everything that's true of her. And then I said, but you know, we really want to know Sarah and you can't just know someone by their, by their deeds. You, you really want to know them by their thoughts, by their intentions, by their attitudes. And so I said, we're not just going to show, this is like a magic video camera. It doesn't just show uh, what she's done in her life. We're actually also going to show everything that she's ever thought, all the good thoughts she's ever had, but also all the bad thoughts that she's ever had, all the weird thoughts that she's ever had, all the thoughts that she's had that, that, that are, she was like, what was I thinking there? Because I really want you to see her heart. I really want you to know what's going on inside of her. And we're not just going to show her deeds, and we're not just going to show her thoughts, but we're actually also going to show her intentions. You know, the Bible says that God judges the thoughts and intentions of our heart. So all the times that she intended to do something good, but it came off bad, you'll get to see that. But also all the times that 
She was doing something and her intentions were a little self-centered or manipulative, but everybody kind of thought she was doing something good. We're going to show everything about Sarah. And I gave this illustration and before I even finished giving the illustration, Sarah is literally up there blushing, just thinking. She knew it was an illustration, but she's literally mortified just thinking about this video being shown in front of all her peers. And I said, Sarah, would you like for me to do that? And she says, no, of course not. And then quickly ran back to her seat. Here's the deal. None of you would want that. None none of you would ever allow for that video to be shown among your peers. And here's the deal. You wouldn't want that video to be shown among other people that would be terrified for their video to be shown. And you know why? Because it would prove what's really in our hearts. It It would prove who we really are. And even though, yes, there's some good things in us, it would prove how fallen we are. It would actually prove that we are wretched, (laughs) that we're lost, that we need a new heart, that we need something so powerful to change us and to make us new. And here's the deal. We wouldn't want that to be seen in front of our peers how much less would we want that to be known before a holy and sovereign and almighty God? But here's the deal. God sees all of this. He knows all of this. And and if you can come to this place of clarity, and I just want to say this to you, if you can find this place of clarity where you can really see, I hope this illustration is helpful, where you can really see how needy you are and how I am, you would realize that you need grace. You need this kind of grace. You, you need someone or something to step in. You'd realize how little control you actually have of your own life. And you know what? I hope this moment of clarity is what a lot of us are experiencing right now. That's one of the great things about this coronavirus. It's, it's hopefully giving us some clarity. It's hopefully helping us realize how much we need the Lord, how small we are, how fragile we are. I hope your prayer life has increased. I hope your dependence on God has increased. And if so, if so then praise God. What a great thing. What is more important about you? You know, A.W. Tozer said, it's one of my favorite quotes, the thing that comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. If there is a God who reigns in the entire universe, if there is a God who is sovereign over all things, then the only thing, the only thing that really matters in your life is do you know him? Do you have a relationship with him? Have you come close to him? I pray that this moment of coronavirus scare would give us this kind of clarity. And, you know, there was a moment, even in the story of Jonah, when he had this kind of clarity. That's chapter two, right? That's what chapter two is all about. There's this moment where Jonah realizes his dependence. He realizes how much he needs a savior. He realizes how much he needs help. He's literally dying. He has no one else to turn to. He realizes how weak he is, and he reaches out to God. He cries out to God. And he experienced God's grace. He experienced God's grace in the most amazing and the most profound way. And then in chapter three, he saw God's grace extending to others. But now we're in chapter four and his heart is hard again. He's forgotten about God's grace. Now he's Jonah again, right? Now he's the great prophet again that's done all these good things. In fact, he's even better now. He saved Nineveh. He saved Nineveh from sure destruction, not realizing that he himself had been saved from destruction. 
not realizing that he himself was a recipient of God's grace. Here's the thing that I think the church can so often miss. You know, a lot of you there, and, and this can be true of me, we think, well, you know, there's, there's those of us that just need a little grace, but then there's some Christians that need, you know, a lot of grace, those people. And maybe God can be gracious to them, not realizing that those are the only kinds of Christians that there are. The only kind of Christian there is is someone who needs a lot of grace, who's been saved from death, who's been saved from calamity, who's been saved from, from what we really deserve. And if you do have that moment of clarity, when you do in humility and dependence realize how much you need the Lord, I have good news for you. Because the Lord, the Lord is a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. It's interesting. I was just reading there from Exodus 32, what what Jonah is quoting in Jonah 4. It's interesting, though, that Jonah stops there. He stops after the grace part of that passage, but the passage is interesting. It actually goes on to say in Exodus 32, 7, but this God will by no means clear the guilty. He will visit the iniquity of the fathers and on the children to the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Where there is guilt, where there is injustice, God will bring justice. God will settle all accounts. You know, this is what God, this is what Jonah wanted for the people of Nineveh. Yet God showed them his mercy, his compassion, his grace. Now, if you think about this passage, how can, how can both these be true? Let's go back to verse six. How can God be merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of, forgiving iniquity and transgression. How can this be true? And let's go to the next page. (coughs) How can this be true? But he'll by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children of the third and fourth generation. How can God be both just and incredibly merciful? And and throughout the Old Testament, as I said, this, this verse appears over and over and over again, and there's this building tension. How is all of this going to be reconciled? How can God be gracious on the other, on on one hand, and not clear the guilty on the other? How is guilt punished, yet at the same time, the guilty spared? And here's the answer. There's only one answer, that there has to be a mediator, that there has to be someone who stands in the way of the guilty, that there has to be someone who receives the, the, the just punishment for the guilty. And before Jonah... There was another prophet, the prophet Isaiah, and he wrote about one who would do this, the great king redeemer, the great redeemer who would come for God's people and stand in their way. And here's what he said of them. And this is, again, hundreds of years before Jesus came. Isaiah said of this great redeemer, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Him, the great redeemer, the great go-between. Him, this, this person who has come so close to us to actually bear our griefs. What does that mean? How does that work? You know, this week I, I found out that a, a friend of mine was diagnosed with leukemia. And I got together with some friends on, on Thursday night to pray for him. And these friends love this brother so much. We all love this brother so much. He's such a wonderful guy. And the good news is, I think it's a very treatable form of leukemia. We're very hopeful uh, that God is going to save this, this guy. He's just one of the best guys. But all of these guys were saying on, on Thursday night, and it was so moving, they were just saying, look, and one of the things the Bible says is to bear one another's burdens. And they were saying, I want to bear his burden. I want to bear his burden. You know, I almost wish, they were saying this, literally, and this just shows true friendship. They're saying, I almost wish God would give me the cancer, that I, that I could take this away from him. He's such a good guy, he's such a wonderful guy, he's such a great man, he's such a great father, he's such a good friend. I, I, I wish that there was some way that I could take part of his cancer on my life. Now, that's a great friend. That's an incredibly loving friend. But don't you see, this is exactly what Isaiah is describing here. This is what Jesus has done for you. How is God going to clear the, the guilty? You need a friend like that that's willing to come and say, I'll take on your guilt. I will bear your guilt. Something that Jesus willingly and, and obediently did on the cross. You see, it's on the cross of Jesus Christ as Jesus was, was being punished for our sake, bearing our cancer of sin, if you will, that the justice of God and the mercy of God met. And from the cross flow, flows incredible grace. This is grace. This is the kind of grace offers. But see, you, you will never know this grace until you realize you have cancer. You, you'll never realize that you have a friend that will take away your debt of sin until you realize you have a debt of sin that you can actually never Hey, this is grace, but this is also the problem of grace. And I would pray and I would hope for our church and for myself that, that I would have this kind of moment of clarity, this kind of dependence on God, not just for one moment and then forget about it and my heart gets hard again and I fall back into self-justification, I fall back into self-reliance. No, I pray, and if you're having this moment of clarity right now, my hope for you is that this would just be the posture of your heart that the posture of your heart would be one of humility before God, realizing your need for him and realizing also as you look at the cross, as you meditate on these things, his great love for you. But this passage doesn't just teach about the problem of grace. It also teaches us about the problem with plants. And the very end of this is kind of bizarre. Um, if you remember the text, starting in verse five, Jonah goes outside of the city and it says he, he made a booth for himself. That was kind of a, a word for tent. He made a tent for himself out there, but it was hot. And God causes this plant to grow up. This plant comes and covers Jonah. And, but then God caused the plant to die. 
And Jonah gets angry. And actually for the second time in this chapter, he says, I want to die. Look at verse nine. It says, but God said to Jonah, do you do well, Jonah, to be angry for the plant? And Jonah says, yes, I do well to be angry about this plant, angry enough to die. And here's what I want us to focus on. Look at verse 10. It says, and the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor. You didn't make it grow. It came into being in a night and it perished in a night. You pity a plant, Jonah. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? This was a reference to children and also much cattle. And you see, this is the problem with plants. Most of us, most of us spend our whole life worried about things that don't really matter. Most of us spend our whole lives thinking about, dreaming about, working for things like this plant, things that are here today and gone tomorrow. You know, when I think about how much time I spend focused on me, <laughs> and me being happy and things going my way. And then when I think about how much time I, I actually think about others and things going their way and, and then things going well for them, it's, it's sad. When I think about how much time I think about material things, things that rust and things that I throw away, things that I think are gonna make me so happy and then a week later, I don't even care about. It's sad. When I think about how, tempor how, how much time I spend, spend thinking about temporary things. Things that, things that may last a few years, but things that are ultimately very temporary versus eternal things, souls of men, the mission of God, things that will go on forever and forever. Here's what I realize. I realize I need a new heart. <laughs> I realize that there's something wrong with me. I spend a lot of time thinking about plants. God says, you didn't work for the plant. <laughs> you didn't make it grow. And it was just here for a day and then it was gone. And now you want to die. And yet I just saved this city with 120,000 children. And you don't even care. You pity the plant. You know, I've been thinking about, thinking about this text and preaching this today. Uh, I probably started, you know, mapping out this text I'm not sure, sometime in the fall. I'm thinking, man, it's gonna be the last day of the missions conference. It's, it's a great challenge. I wanna press this into the folks. I had no idea when I planned this sermon for today that there would be a global pandemic. I, I had no idea that we would all be facing an economic meltdown right now. I had no idea that, that, that many of the people that I'd be talking to would have literally lost their jobs just a couple of days ago. I had no idea. I had no idea that there were gonna be people around us right now getting really sick and, and some maybe even dying. I didn't know any of this was going to be coming this week, but yet in God's sovereignty, here we are in this moment and what a moment of clarity for us. You know, our, your life, my life, our lives on earth are so short, they're so small, they're so temporary. This life is so temporary. Now, some of you may say, I think this is it. This is all we have. But I don't think you really believe that. 
I think you know there's more. You know, Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity in the heart of every man. And I believe that. I think that there is an intuition that every person has that knows that their life is supposed to go on. That's why everybody, even atheistic stories, have this kind of long-lasting impact kind of thing. You know, Augustine famously said that your heart is restless. Our heart is restless until it rests in you. I think we have this intuition. We know we were supposed to know God. C.S. Lewis, I love the way he puts it. He says, if we find ourselves with a desire or desires that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Haven't you been there? Man, I know this. I, I, I know that, you know, as good as these things can be, there's, it's not quite satisfying. I must be made for something different. Even Bono said, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. You know this. This, this, is, this is echoing throughout history, throughout the souls of men. We all recognize that God has put eternity in the heart of man. You and I, we were made to know God. We were made to know God. We were made to have fellowship with him. That's where our souls can rest. And, and if, we, if we rest in that, there is so much hope and joy and life there. We were made for more than plants. We were made for so much more than these temporary and small things that don't really matter. And if we know God and love God, then the evidence of that is that we will begin to care about what he cares about. I love the book of Jonah because it shows us the heart of God. He loves his people. He wants to save the people of Nineveh. He cares about people. His mission is so important. It's eternal. It's for the whole world. And so I just want to ask you as we close, has your heart joined in with the mission of God? Do you care about the mission of God? Do you, or do you find yourselves caring about, delighting about the things that God himself cares about? You know, the, the story ends in a weird way. It, it, it just kind of ends. God says to Jonah, should I not care about this city? Question mark. And we don't know how Jonah responds. Like, like, how does Jonah respond to the story? What does Jonah do? And so I guess I, if you'll allow me, I want to use my uh, sanctified imagination to offer a couple of endings. This is not inspired. But how could the story end? And I guess one ending could be, I got it over here. The heart of Jonah was changed. He saw how foolish he had been. And he went back into Nineveh to celebrate with his new brothers and sisters. The people that were once his enemies were now his friends because of the grace of God. I, I, I would love, wouldn't that be a great ending? I wish that the story ended that way. I hope for you that the story ends that way. I hope when you're challenged about the plants that you care about so much and the people and the souls that you don't care about, the temporary things that you care about so much and the eternal things that you don't care about, I hope that this would be our ending. But I fear that the real ending of Jonah is more like this. Jonah rejected God. And he spent the rest of his life living for things that didn't really last. When his own crisis was over, he just started living for himself again. 
And so as we close, I just want to ask you to meditate on these things. And uh, I'm going to ask you just to bow your head uh, before the Lord now, even as you're there in your homes with your families. And just to meditate on this, how will you respond? How will you respond? What are you going to do? Are you just going to keep loving plants? Or are you going to see how merciful and good and gracious God is? Are you going to look to Christ, who's the brother, who's the best friend that's come along to bear your burdens? And are you going to be healed and you're going to live for him? Let's pray. Father, I pray it would be so that you would use your word today to change the hearts of our church. Father, I pray it would be so that we would be moved by this, that we would not be like Jonah, so foolish, so selfish, so self-centered, but Lord, you would open our hearts to see you and to see your kingdom and to see your purposes, that we would respond to this intuition that's in our heart, that you've put eternity in our hearts. And then we would look to Jesus, that we, we, we would see in him a friend that loves us so much more deeply than my friends love our buddy with leukemia. He didn't just take on something that would kill him. He, he, take, he took on all of our sin, all of our, all of our death, Lord, even when we were far from him, even when we were rejecting him in our sin, he, he took this on. He loved us, Lord. I pray that we would see that and be changed by it. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use this time uh, to move in the heart and life of our church. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matt's going to lead us in a song as we close. I, I do just want to invite you if, you, if you want to respond, if you have a question, feel free. You can text me right now, 678-951-9041. That's our text to pastor line. But I'll respond to those. 678 951 904, and you can also respond just on the feed below if you have a need. Or uh, you can feel free to join us after the service through Zoom. I'd love to connect with you there, but I invite you just in your homes to sing along now as Matt leads us in a response.